Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. We're up. <laughs> All right. Hey, Joe, I appreciate you coming on. Um, this is, uh, you know, kind of interesting because uh, we'll get into your background a little bit, Joe. But one of the things that I, I constantly get asked about, you know, as I promote this carnivorous diet is, can I bodybuild? You know, can I get shredded and all this stuff? And I know you have some experience uh, kind of in that, in that realm. I mean, you, you, you spent a lot of your life being around bodybuilding, doing some competitive bodybuilding yourself. And I know you have some thoughts on that. And so... Um, first of all, thanks for coming on. Uh, I know you're, we talked on the phone before a couple times. Um, you are, I guess, from the UK, I'm assuming, and now recently transplanted to Dallas, but you're doing much of your time is spent traveling around with, with one of your companies. And so can you give us a little, just a little quick, you know, maybe five minute synopsis about who you are and, and then we'll get into some of this stuff? Yeah, sure. I mean, I started training with weights i've always been active in sports so it was like soccer and cricket growing up in the uk as soon as i could stand up so i've always been active um but i was always overweight people look at me now and they maybe think i'm an ectomorph but uh, i was actually struggling with my weight and it held me back in sports pretty much all the way through and i started to get into weight training and bodybuilding at the age of 15 16 so you're looking at 16 17 years now and in that time I've obviously competed, but I've had, I've worked with a lot of professional bodybuilders, um, helped people a ton with transformations, and I was really inquisitive as to nutrition and supplementation from the age of 15, 16, as opposed to most people who will just follow a regimented diet plan without doing any research, and then maybe get more into the training aspect. I really gravitated towards the nutrition because my body didn't cooperate how other people's did. So from my own difficulties, it made me dig a little bit deeper. Like most people who look for alternative routes, it stems from some difficulties they've had. So I've always gravitated towards low carbohydrate because I was overweight and I always found it was better for me um, to get body composition changes and as I got more mature and developed my physique and also my understanding of reading bodies then the blood lack of blood sugar fluctuations being able to be have more mental clarity and then really time nutrition and tweak it and create create environments in which the body will become responsive which I still don't believe people in our space quite understand actually programming metabolism and um, creating windows of opportunity where the body will accept certain nutrients and become a more favorable environment to encourage body composition changes. So this has been about 15, 16 year journey working with all level of 
bodybuilders, up to the professional levels, up to Olympian level bodybuilders. So quite a lot of experience and I've been in the low carb keto state for gosh 2013, 2012-13 I still get pop-ups on my Facebook timeline with some pictures of bodybuilders and stuff and it's like I didn't put much out then but there was things like fat loading and amino loading and low carb, zero carb days back then and people thought I was a little crazy because it wasn't done that much obviously the ketogenic diet's been around a long time, but the notion of fat loading, which was basically a very high fat day, and then cycling protein and fats was really, well, it's even a new notion now in the bodybuilding scene. No one's really doing that. And that's how I kind of came into this. I've kind of been the black sheep, to be honest, in the keto community. I got kicked out of a bunch of groups early on because I wasn't conforming to set amount of um, percentages of macronutrients because I know that you give the body the same nutrients, the same macro percentages day in, day out, the body will adapt and find homeostasis. And we need to be continuously cycling nutrition because energy expenditure is not the same every day, the environment's not the same every day. And to create change, we need to be constantly moving the body forward. It's the same with training which you'll probably understand this, Sean, when you're peaking for an event, you aren't doing the same training day in, day out. You're looking to peak, so you're giving the body a different stimulus to create that window of opportunity where you can actually peak. Nutrition's no different, and people don't seem to understand that and don't seem to understand programming metabolism. Yeah, Joe, I mean, I agree with you on that. I mean, I think, obviously, you know, it, it always makes me laugh when somebody tells me what I'm supposed to eat every day. And you're like, you can program a particular, you know, diet for somebody not knowing what all they're going to face, because I, I, I agree completely. Um, you know, my training, as my training changes, so does my my nutrition. And, and, I, and I act accordingly to what, what I think I'm, my body's asking me. So I think it changes day to day. Um, you know, we had, uh, and I think we will go more into this, but we had a guy named uh, Professor Stuart Phillips on um, a couple weeks ago, and he's one of the world's leading experts, it's far from the academic sphere, uh, regarding uh, protein metabolism and muscle protein synthesis. And we, we, went, we got into this and we talked to him about, you know, are carbohydrates essential for building muscle and what is the role of insulin? And he basically said that, you know, they're not, they, they are permissive and they are not a requirement. And so insulin per, can permit you to build muscle, but it doesn't act directly as an anabolic agent, even though, as you know, there are a lot of bodybuilders that will, will inject insulin uh, for that purpose. But it's very interesting to see that. And so I want to, you know, uh, you know, you talk about protein cycling, fat cycling, you know, altering the macronutrients, because again, uh, we're, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we talk about bodybuilding, it's it's really a different conversation than what we talk about people that for day to day health and day to day activity. And so, my focus as a physician has been just let's get healthy and, and do that stuff. And so, it's, it's a little bit of an easier road. But there are people that you know they they ask me, well, how do I get to six percent body fat, or how do I put on twenty pounds of muscle? Yeah. And I have general ideas, but I'd like to see what what your thoughts are. So, let's say. You got a guy that says, I, I want to, you know, for whatever reason, I'm whatever crazy reason, I want to do a ketogenic diet or even a carnivorous diet, and I want to put on 20 pounds of muscle. What are you going to tell that guy? Right. Well, that again, you're going to look at the training, the training element. So, 
a low carbohydrate environment actually lends itself very well to a certain type of training. And again, training and nutrition become cyclical. So what I would look to do initially would be get that person very, very strong. And we'll be working more in powerlifting rep ranges because it's not requiring as much glycolytic activity. So, but you can get very, very strong on high fats. So you may run that phase for 6, 8, 12 weeks and get someone very strong on foundation and movements with a higher fat percentage and a good amount of protein. Do not be scared of protein. You know, hey, I, hey, actually tr- I actually hey. tried that last year, sir. Hey Joe, just just when you say higher amounts of fat, what what kind of percentage wise are you talking about? Is this like seventy percent, eighty percent? Where's where's your what are you no, considering? I don't like it, it, again, percentages you can't give an arbitrary number because it will vary depending on someone's calorific requirements. When the amount of protein per pound of lean body mass is probably where you're going to start, and that, for me, depending on the person, that can titrate up to. Anywhere between 0.65, 0.7 on the lowest possible end, um, grams per pound of lean mass, that is, all the way up to 1.5, you know. But when, the higher end of protein, you're going to run a lower end of fat, and that will lead to, obviously, to lean out. But it's only, there's lots of diminishing returns. So if someone's calorie requirement, because they have, have, have a high energy expenditure, is something ridiculous like four and a half, five thousand. You can't set a percentage of protein because that protein might land them at four or five hundred grams, which will be excessive. So that's what I mean. I'm not very much in favour of set percentages. I would set protein and titrate that up and down as needed, and then you fill in the the energetic the gap for energy with the calories with dietary fat. And again, the types of fat vary. This is something that nobody's looking at, and I've done played with ratios with athletes. Low levels of saturated fat work well for some athletes. Higher levels of omega threes work extremely well for controlling inflammation. And I see this from the from the training aspect and the stress that's put on the body. And people actually drop body fat quicker with higher percentages of monounsaturates and polyunsaturates as opposed to saturated fat. That's just in certain populations. But when you work with someone very closely, you can get changes pretty quickly. But no one's looking at that. I think Rhonda Patrick and Peter Atia actually did a podcast maybe a month ago, and they were just sit, um, talking about blood work potentially changing with low levels of saturated fat for certain people. I'm like, well, that's no that's no new news to me because we've been. I was doing that five years ago. Five years ago, I would have diet set for certain people four days of the week will be higher omega-3s and higher higher monounsaturated fats and then during the week i would fat load them with a high percentage of saturated fat and the changes in body composition the the hormonal response from that the next day they would wake up much harder and be very strong for the following few days and that would would drop the dietary fat down slightly and then they'd get a big drop in adipose tissue that lose a lot of weight the next two to three days because you're priming the environment. Um, I know I've kind of gone off track regarding the protein requirements, but there's just a lot that we're learning now. And even the people like Rhonda Patrick, Peter Tia, they're just starting to learn. Like dietary fats all have a different signature. They all have a different effect on the body. A fat is not a fat like a carbohydrate. It's not a carbohydrate. I think yeah. now we're starting to drill down on 
stearic acid, palmitic acid, mystic acid, and then obviously you've got the MCTs, oleic acid, and the obviously we know the omega-3s, but when you start looking at them a bit more in depth, you start playing with the ratios, you have very different transcriptions on the body. Yeah, Mike Eads just did a talk on this, or it was released, I think he did it earlier this year, uh, and he was talking about that very same subject, talking about mitochondrial efficiency and 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 how different facts affect that and so i think that's that's another sort of resource we can go to look for something like that but he he was very much in favor of stearic acid as far as uh having a favorable profile on you know fat burning based on some of the some of the, the uh biochemistry that's going on but let's continue so you've got this guy you got you know you put him you put him on a powerlifting routine you know he's doing triples and you know maybe upsets of five you know low you know low reps you know, uh, heavier weights. So, that, yeah. so how did, so then, then, so then what's going on? I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, I have my ideas, but I want to hear what, hear what you have to say. Yeah. So obviously they're going to be pretty well fat adapted given four, six, eight weeks in, they're going to be pretty much pretty efficient. Some supplementation can be beneficial around the workout window. I mean, this was the thing that I got big kickback from in the ketogenic communities. I mean, I myself was not a carbohydrates for, 17, 18 months now, like no refeeds, no intra-workout carbohydrate supplementation because I wanted to push things to the extreme to see how they feel. Um, but there are ways around that. So we will use amino acids for fuel. So you can use some more gluconeogenic amino acids around the training time. And to be honest, Sean, a lot of the issue comes down to hydration with people. It's the same for feeling the pump and it's the same for workout capacity. It's being well hydrated and having a good electrolyte balance in there, not just salt, making sure that everything's well covered. And you can get that a lot from the diet and supplement with additional calcium, magnesium and potassium as well if needed. Um, but once they're more fat, fat adapted and become uh, more efficient with the training, then you can start increasing the volume. And for me, it comes down to timing. So on certain days, you will go higher in protein, especially I would like, I always put the first workout meal much higher in protein because if you're going to get any gluconeogenic activity, you want that gluconeogenic activity to be when the GLUT4 pathway is activated and the muscle cells are very receptive to any glucose that's going in to replenish any glycogen. There's a demand for it, the body will provide it. Yeah, it's interesting. The GLUT4 receptor, you know, it's an insulin-mediated receptor, but there's also apparently an exercise-induced channel, and so you can yeah. actually, you can actually uptake, uh, you know, nutrients, you know, glucose in particular through that. Through 100%, that. which is why I'm really big into that post-workout window for feeding. So people who are not eating post-workout, you need to eat, and amino acids have a great transcription here as well, and also in between meals if you're not eating, eating frequently. If you're looking to pack muscle on. You need to encourage muscle protein synthesis, and leucine is the real key driver to that in the absence of insulin. So if you're only eating two or three times a day, then I'd encourage every two to three hours you'd be looking to take in three to five grams of leucine, and that's going to only provide a very mild insulin response, and it drops off pretty quickly, but you're going to be initiating muscle protein synthesis, and because of the protein and fats being so dense, you're going to have the amino acid profile circulating in your bloodstream. You have the essential amino acids in your bloodstream. All it needs is muscle protein synthesis to be activated, which can be done quite simply with a bowl of dose of leucine. And that's why I encourage post-workout as well, is 
an essential amino acid base with a high amount of leucine to really count to well to compound the effect of mTOR activation because I think the studies show you're going to get mTOR activation from the stimulus of training, but it's actually a beneficial a beneficial adaptation by adding a fast-acting protein source or leucine post-workout to that, as opposed to insulin, which doesn't really offer that much of a benefit once the training has activated the uh, mTOR pathway, mTOR C1, I think that is. Yeah, so, you know, and again, there's a lot of people that, that, that think mTOR is a boogeyman and it, it drives cancer and aging, and, and we have to realize that, it's, that it has a function in muscle synthesis. And so I think if your goal yeah. is to put on muscle. I think it's interesting you talk about frequent meals because I know for me on maintenance, I, I eat relatively infrequently and I think there's potential benefits from that on a general health standpoint. But I think if your goal is I want to pack on as much muscle as possible, I would tend to agree that you're going to have to increase your meal frequency and, and that probably will allow you to eat more calorically as well. Uh, but I, you know, when you talk about a good source of leucine, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a big proponent of eating you know eating eating food and i and i think that yeah. you know, beef is a good source of leucine as well and so can you talk about uh getting that in in sort of like say if you wanted to do it with food how would you how would you sort of you know is there a, is there a certain amount of food you'd say you would eat and how frequently after training would you would you initiate that and say say you're going to eat six meals a day like like a standard bodybuilder would even though you're not using carbohydrates how would you how would that translate to you uh, both, both with food and or supplements, if, if you're if you're suggesting supplements. Well, supplements are essential. I mean, just so people are aware about my background, I do own a supplement company and have been doing that for the last ten years of my life. But I'm not one of these guys who forces supplements. It's nutrition first, and a supplement is a supplement to fill in any gaps for any deficiencies. So, if you're well regimented with nutrition, you should be able to get the most most of that from food. But as opposed to someone like you, Sean, and actually I eat very similar to you. It's like, even though I'm building muscle now, and we're aggressively going after it, I'm, uh, um, I'm only in on training days, maybe three meals a day. Um, but on my non-training days, because I've not got the stimulus of mTOR through training, I'll eat more frequently. And that will just simply come down to, instead of eating maybe that pound, pound and a half, two pounds like you do per meal, you're going to pull maybe that down to six, seven ounces. You're going to stimulate mTOR because you're hitting the 2.53 grams of leucine threshold from your food, but you're going to be ready for the next meal a lot quicker. So you're getting that constant stimulus of mTOR throughout the day without supplementation. Someone who eats on your regimen looking to stimulate mTOR, then that's when a, um, a leucine in between meals, a leucine dose in between meals will be beneficial because you're going to get the mTOR activation. It comes down to lifestyle and it comes down to preference. You know, it can be done either way, but it just comes down to how someone's day set up, structured, or even if they're in work, you know, or just personal preference. Um, anything can be, be manipulated if you have the knowledge to do so. You know, you've just got to accept that different things work for different people. Yeah, I mean, I, the lifestyle point, you know, one of the things I like about what I do now is because I, you know, cook once or twice a day and that's yeah. it. And, and you know, if, if, if you say I'm going to eat six meals a day and they're all going to be, you know, uh, food, then then obviously that becomes, you know, well, either, you know, you do it most bodybuilders, you put it in a little Tupperware container and you and you go and you walk around with Tupperware containers all, all day long. And I, and I guess that's that's certainly anything. So now we've got so we've got a guy who's, you know, he's done his powerlifting, he's fat loaded. 
Um, he's got it. He's got fat adapted. He's, you know, and he's maybe eating more frequently getting, you know, a minimal amount of leucine in there. He's on a high volume phase and that, that pretty much is, is in your view, the, the prescription to put on muscle, I'm assuming. Yeah. For someone who's switching into that, into a, a, a carnivorous or a ketogenic style of eating, it's the best, it's the smoothest transition to go into those low rep ranges whilst you become adapted. And then as you become more efficient and the mitochondria becomes upregulated and the fuel efficiency is much better, then you titrate up the training volume, you titrate up the calories. And with that, I titrate up the protein as well because you're going to be burning through a lot more fuel substrate. And then you, I would, you just keep cycling the, the uh, macronutrients as and when is needed. You will know when digestion's off. If you become intuitive, you will know when you're starting to feel a little backed up appetites really not there then it's the case of okay let's pull down the dietary fat a little bit and speed up things with leaner sources of protein so a lot of it's just about reading your own body and understanding what's needed i mean if you eat lean i actually think you said this two or three weeks ago sean i think you were eating new york strips and you said you were you could tell your body needs that extra fat that's someone who knows its own body it's an athlete who knows <laughs> their own body i'm very much the same if i eat lean protein sources for two or three days, my body's crying out for a dose of a couple of heavy fat meals. So I think once people start to learn that and learn their own cues, then the better. But people don't know what they're looking for. So things education is the only way forward and having people try and point out what signs should be looking for. Yeah, I uh, think that's that's an important concept, uh, Joe. And I think that is something that, you know... Um, yeah, I mean, certainly if I go lean too long, I mean, you know, three, four days later, I'm like, I need some fat. And, you know, I just, and then I just up the fat and I eat that. And I think that flows into what you're talking about with the macronutrient cycling a little bit. You know, but again, there's a, there's a difference between intentionally manipulating your body composition often to a level. And we can talk about when we're getting lean, you know, obviously when you get down to these competitive bodybuilder levels of leanness, that's yeah. not a normal human state. It's not a you know, but but I know you said that you know you feel that you know as opposed to a traditional sort of bodybuilding style with with the, the carb refeeds and the carb cycling and stuff like that, you feel that there may be some potential benefit with without including that stuff. Can you can you touch upon that and that it might be potentially easier and more beneficial for people without manipulating that third variable, the, the carbohydrate or the you know which is going to cause obviously big insulin spikes and glucose fluctuations. Oh, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I mean, I said 15 years experience, and if you gave me a diet of fish and white rice, I'm, I cannot function on that. So anyone who requires to think and concentrate in the workplace, and I see this day in, day out, with even with like doctors who are trying to achieve physique goals, and the coach puts them on carbohydrate and low-fat diets they cannot function the work suffers so what we we get from eating in this style is not having the fluctuations in blood sugar so you're not watching the clock every two hours to see when you can eat your next meal your cognition's much better the focus is much better you can concentrate in the workplace you don't have to be eating every two to three hours so it becomes much more of a lifestyle diet and Obviously, we know that the ketones are muscle sparing, which I don't really want to get into too much because ketones are a fuel substrate, right? So basically, carbohydrates are muscle sparing. Eating extra protein provides more amino acids, which are muscle sparing. So 
to the extent that its muscle sparing is up for debate at the moment in comparison to it's another fuel substrate, it's another macronutrient almost. So, um, it's just massive benefits when it comes to lifestyle, flexibility, and it's the cognition. The blood sugar fluctuations and those being stable and not the constant peaks and valleys with insulin release just makes it a much easier, maintainable way of life. And I got my body fat tested at Christmas at Texas University via DEXA scan. And it was the fattest I'd been for 18 months. I say fattest, it's not fat. Softest, I should say softest. My body fat was at 7%. I'd maintained between 5 and 7% for pretty much 18 months while traveling all over the States and all over the UK building my business and still training I would never be able to achieve something like that using a protein carbohydrate diet because I would be on my backside most of the time falling asleep I don't get tired as frequently eating this style and it becomes achievable to maintain a certain look I actually think it's going to be a massive growth area in the fitness industry with the development of the men's physique categories and the classic physique categories because those guys compete seven, eight, nine, ten times a year and they need to maintain a lean physique. Well, for me, the easiest way to do that's a carnivorous, ketogenic, low-carbohydrate, zero-carbohydrate style because you really don't feel any deviations or fluctuations in energy. So. Yeah, that's uh, that is uh, you know one of the things I've noticed is you know again it's it's a consistent energy you know you, you you don't have these ravenous times where you're starving you don't have these sort of I call them cellular crises where there's a, there's an energy crisis because you you you're, you're sitting there and I mean that goes back into being fat adapted but um, yeah that's something as well I just wanted to make, to touch on while while you while we're on that topic is. The, stimulus, the constant stimulus of mTOR and the people looking to build muscle and then being fat adapted is that I don't believe that building muscle and then having to sacrifice longevity are mutually exclusive. I think we spoke about this earlier, Sean. When you're fat adapted, you can harness the benefits of AMPK activation. And if you look at the studies coming out now on time-restricted feeding, anything up to 10 hours is beneficial and 12 hours is great. So I think on non-training days, you can take advantage of this. You can activate MPK. You're not going to lose muscle. And I think where we're going to end up seeing things going is a case of fasting and feasting. And again, what does that boil down to? It's something I spoke to earlier. You're priming the body to create a response. And I think that's going to be that's great for packing muscle on. I think it's going to become proven and proven over time. And it's something that always resonates with me and you use that phrase and I mentioned to it well, the first time we spoke is you don't fast you feast and I think that that's something that cannot be emphasized enough because people who are fasting over prolonged periods they're doing damage to the body because they never overfeed to the amount to maintain metabolism and to get the response needed metabolic response needed so over time they're down regulating metabolism they're down regulating hormones over time what happens is they'll have an extra few hours to the fast they'll have an extra day to the fast the weight loss stalls they have another day to a fast the fast extends they never feast enough and it drives me crazy because it happens in bodybuilding they add cardio they reduce food 
then they may add a drug, then they'll add cardio, then they'll reduce food. And what you end up with is people with hormones that aren't going back unless they're enhanced. And a lot of females which are wrecked for a year, and it takes them a year to recover after competitions. But this is now happening in the general population when they're fasting and not eating sufficiently in their eating windows. And I think it's going to become more and more prevalent over the next six to 12 months. And there's going to be a lot of people with rescue jobs as the fasting craze continues. Yeah, if I can jump in quick with the fasting thing, I think that's you, you, what you said resonated with me big, quite a bit. Cause like with the folks I've worked with, when they ask me about fasting, I try to probe to find out like where their goals are with fasting. Because what I find oftentimes is what you said is that they they get behind the fasting part of it but they are when they are going into it with this mindset of i need to lose weight or i need to cut fat um they forget that side of it the refeed window so then they get to the refeed window and they kind of think they get greedy essentially they're like okay well i'll eat a normal size meal here and then i'll get more bang for my buck because then i had this bigger you know energy deficit And, and like you said you keep doing that um, and for me personally, you know, I work with extreme endurance athletes mostly. So, um, you know, most people probably think that we can't draw a whole lot of parallels between extreme endurance and bodybuilding. But I find myself drawing parallels all the time with the, you know, folks in your community. Um, and part of that is because, you know, you guys are trying to kind of find this like almost unsustainable like like period of time to present. And then you may back off that for a little bit and then kind of revisit it. And that's essentially yeah. the same periodized approach an endurance athlete's going to take. Like I describe my like peak training phase as my unsustainable training phase. It's the type of training that I can only do so often. And you do it to get ready for an, a competition. And then after that, you reset. And you know that requires manipulation of diet, periodization, and the stuff that you were yeah. talking about, just with a different goal in mind. And it's really fascinating. Um, and you know, the funny thing is, like when you described your timeline and stuff, like it, it matched a lot of stuff that I experienced too. I started doing keto, low carb in 2011, and you know it was starting to kind of swing upwards as something that people were looking into. Um, but like any kind of thing, it, it develops a bit of a cult and then people say like, all right, we got to keep our carbs at 30 to 50 grams a day or whatever it is. And protein has to be this fat has to be that. Um, and you know, that, that may be great for someone who's got a very predictable lifestyle or a very like more traditional, I'm going to go to the gym a couple times a week and then I'm going to work my office job or if they're dealing with some sort of metabolic issue or, you know, diabetes or epilepsy or something like that. But when you look at the context of an athlete, in many cases, like for me, for example, this, I always share people with this, you got to look at it like this. If you pluck a week out of my training year and you decide to pluck a week out of there that's right after my A race, I might be sitting on my ass the whole time for the next five to seven days. You take another week out of there and I'm in peak training, I might be working out you know, 20 hours when you add all the running, strength, mobility, all that stuff. It's like that's two different people. So yeah. like you cannot look at it from a single lens. It, it's, it, it, it's, it's, you're dealing with so many more variables at that point. Yeah, for sure. And it happens across all sports. It happens. Everyone's peaking. You have to prime the body for it. So it's whether it's powerlifting, it's strongman, it's endurance, whether it's bodybuilding. You know, you've got to understand that everything needs to be cycled. And the body's always going to be in a constant chain, uh, state of flux, depending on what you information you're giving it i mean training is just information you're giving the body foods information you're giving the body 
So it's going to spit out based on the results going to be based on what information you, you feed in the body, you know, whether it's from a training stimulus or whether it's from a nutritional standpoint. So is um, there's a lot to be learned and people just need to be less dogmatic and be more open-minded to things and understand when they're talking that they're talking to a specific population. So people may listen to this podcast and like, oh, well, I'll try this. And if you're sedimentary and you've got some metabolic health issues, then what I'm talking about is probably not going to be the best course of action. Mm -hmm. I'm actually working with someone who's a leading researcher in gut microbiome. He's been biohacking for the past 15 years. He's one a very, very smart guy. I've taken his nutrition on. He's in his 50s. But, but he was doing extended fasts for a long time and taking in maybe 1,300 calories, and he's killed his metabolism. I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm a lot younger than you, but we're doing some work together, so like, let me just take take care of you. Don't ask questions, let's just let's just follow. So now we think we've got him up to about 3,000 calories, and he's not gaining weight. So what I've done now is primed his metabolism to be able to start cycling calories, and I know that he's gonna drop 10, 12 pounds in the next four or five weeks because we'll just increase his training volume slightly but start cycling his calories and zigzagging calories and that's when you get the real benefits that's when you get the results so he's had three weeks of investing time in building his metabolism and now he'll be able to reset and go and this is just a message that's lost in every single community because they become scared of food once they start fasting or they don't overfeed or they don't give the body a chance to compensate Hey folks, Human Performance Outlier Podcast is very happy to announce that we have brought on ButcherBox as one of our sponsors. Uh, with ButcherBox, you can get some high quality meat and cut out the middleman so that you save quite a bit on what would normally be the charge you'd get at the grocery store. Uh, with that, on your first order, if you use promo code HPO, you'll get 20% off plus free bacon. Sean, why don't you tell them about your experience with ButcherBox? Yeah, I mean, I've used ButcherBox, you know, for quite a while now. I've gone through several of their, their uh, different boxes. And, you know, for me, and, and by the way, that's a pretty good deal there uh, relative to some of the other stuff I've seen out there. But it has been, uh, you know, very consistently good, a good product. You know, it's always been, you know, the, the quality of the meat's been very good. Uh, for you guys that are concerned about it, they are a 100% antibiotic, hormone-free product that is a grass-finished product. The meat comes out of Australia. Uh, and it has a very, uh, I find, you know, because and I'll be honest, I, I, I prefer grain-fed beef in general, but I find that this particular uh, grass-finished product uh, tastes pretty solid. I mean, it's pretty good. You know, a lot of the, the grass-finished uh, meat can taste a little bit uh, almost gamey, uh, and I don't find that to be the case uh, with, with the Butcher Box product, and probably because of the like the time the animal spent on grass, and they get a little bit more marbling in there, and I think that helps. And so I've had a, a very good experience with them, and I highly recommend them. All right, folks, head over to ButcherBox.com and hit promo code HPO. Thank you, and back to the show. Yeah, Joe, Joe, I want to I piggyback on that because I've said on a number of occasions, and maybe people haven't heard me say this, but I think the fact that, you know, if you look at, you know, a teenage boy, right, you know, teenage kids, they eat everything, they eat the whole house, they eat their parents out of house and home, they don't, they don't get fat usually, I mean, a normal active kid, a healthy kid, right, they're, they're, they're able to eat a lot of food, I'm in my 50s, and I can put down 4,000, 5,000 calories, you know, four pounds of steak a day, and I will maintain my body composition, I don't gain body fat, even though I'm eating a lot of food, 
to me, I consider that a sign of a healthy metabolism. I think you, to the, the capacity to be able to deal with and, and process and absorb and utilize uh, a large amount of food to me indicates healthy metabolism, um, you know, very clearly to me. Um, and I think that that point you made about, you know, you, these people that starve, literally starve themselves and they do lose some weight, but I mean, you know, often they'll, their body composition will often be worse, their hormone profile will be worse, their overall uh, resting metabolic rate will drop. Uh, we'll see that happen, uh, you know, and, and so I think, I agree with you. I think there is there is a role for not eating every two two hours for, for the normal person, again, excluding the bodybuilder trying to, to pack on size. But at the same time, you know, people saying I'm going to fast for five days, 10 days, 12 days, you know, 20 days to me, you know, I, I just don't think that is a particularly uh, good strategy long term for, you know, very many people overall. And so uh, I'm glad you brought that point up. Um, yeah. Like I said, I, I like to I like to feast. I, I think the, the emphasis needs to be on the food, not the not the not the fast part. Even for bodybuilding, I think it's overkill. If you're seven days a week, you're eating every two to three hours, it's overkill. Because what happens, you see the big problems now, it's a lot of stomach distension with bodybuilders. Over time, we're not designed to eat seven, eight meals a day. The digestive system becomes taxed. You know, the hydrochloric acid, the stomach acid, it's not strengthening enough to break down food. So over time, it just becomes, the body will start to deteriorate. And you'll see bodybuilders or athletes in my field look good for two to three years, then all of a sudden they'll start to get a look. The body loses what I call its pop. It's not as responsive. And you can see this down regulation there of the ability to process food and extract the nutrients from food. And on a cellular level, they're not as efficient and not as healthy. The body has a very different look. It takes a trained eye to see it, but it, it becomes very evident. You know, and the one thing I love about what you've done with the carnivore diet is you put a training piece with it, Sean. Now, this is something that it needs to be translated more. You don't need to be a bodybuilder. You don't need to train like a bodybuilder six, seven times a week. But it's a very, very good tool for priming and restoring a damaged metabolism because you can, you can increase um, activity levels, get better bone density for aging populations, accrue a little bit of muscle mass, which is going to stand you in good stead for longevity. But it's a tool for meta um, manipulating metabolism, so they can increase food, increase food, and then you come back to a healthier set point regarding metabolism, then pull back from training, they're in a better in a better place. So I think the training and stimulus is not used or looked at enough as an actual tool for metabolism, not just focusing on fat loss. You know, you're going to run on a treadmill, some resistant training, some strength training, anything as a tool for programming metabolism, getting away from body composition and numbers, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure Zach will agree. I mean, we're all we're we're all pro exercise. I think there's this tremendous benefits outside of any kind of particular body composition benefits that it might have, but for helping with things like insulin sensitivity, uh, you know, I, I think just the way the body functions in general. And I agree with you about uh, you can still be an athlete and active and exercise, and I think that generally will lead to a longer certainly health span if not lifespan is they're not mutually exclusive let's delve into and i almost i almost dread delving into this topic because 
you know, when I when I talk about a carnivorous diet, I'm not talking about it as as a as a as a, jig, as a magical weight loss thing. But a lot of people get into diets because they don't they, they care about losing weight and they don't care. You know, their goal is let me lose these 30 pounds as fast as I possibly can. And I tell them, you know, that necessarily that sort of mindset is not necessarily the winning strategy. I think so. I can't remember who said this, but they said, you know, you get you don't lose weight to get healthy. You get healthy to lose weight. And I think there's a there's a benefit to saying, let's get you get your health to fix your metabolism, fix your nutrition. And then the weight loss is, is able to happen in a, in a more appropriate fashion. But let's talk about let's say you're a. You know, you're 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 a you're a guy who's sitting there at 12, 14 percent body fat. You know, you're pretty healthy. You know, you don't have these metabolic problems. And now I want to use a carnivorous diet or a ketogenic diet, and I want to get down to eight percent body weight for whatever reason. Say it's a vanity reason. I want to look good in a, in a swimsuit. I've got a, you know, a uh, men's physique contest. What? How would you manage that person in 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 the context of either a ketogenic diet or 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 even a purely carnivorous diet? Okay, so start by assessing where they're at now with their food intake and with their energy expenditure, the training volume. And what I would prefer to do early on is if someone's, say, training for 45 minutes, four times a week, I'd actually like to try and increase food or at least keep it where it is and then increase training volume because the metabolism will become faster and faster and faster over time. Obviously, that's going to they're going to be burning through more body fat. But once you've primed metabolism after two to three weeks, then it really comes down to it. And doing it on a carnivorous diet, it just takes away, honestly, Sean, it will just take away any guesswork. Because if you're eating ribeyes, you drop, let's say, okay, so today we're going to drop the ribeyes and we're going to do some sirloin steak, we're going to do some New York strip, we're going to use some leaner cuts. And we can do this for two to three days. And then we can have almost like a refeed day with higher fat. So it will be cycling calories and cycling down, up and down dietary fat. And for people who don't want to weigh the scales, get the Tupperwares out, say, okay, we're going to change the cuts of meat. And it becomes very, very simple. It takes away any guesswork. You said to someone, okay, you're eating four ribeyes a day, coming to two pounds, that's where your set point is now. Then we're going to eat two pounds of New York strip, or we're going to do a pound of New York strip and a pound of sirloin, you know, and over time, just keep working that down, working that down, but also building in the repeat days. As I said nothing should stay low for longer than four or five days without resetting for once two days again. That will allow a healthy metabolism and a healthy hormonal state. And as you dig deeper and deeper, then you'll probably get to leaner cuts, leaner cuts of meat and then just keep the refeeds going. The refeed should always be at at least basal metabolic rate, or else you're not going to get anywhere near resetting. And training volume can either increase again, or it can pretty much maintain the same. You don't want to be burning the candle at both ends, so we're either going to be increasing training volume, or we're going to be playing with calories and macronutrients. Because that's where the real issues come into play with body composition. People will either will pull both calories and increased training volume and then when you go in if you're doing both those simultaneously and that's that continues that's when you run into a whole host of problems and you, you can get much quicker results and more sustainable results and make it more sustainable over a lifetime with more of a cycling approach so it's like okay we've got training volume set we've not got any more time to train so we're going to play with calories so and this is where the ratios come in 
this is where I hate the fact that we're going to do 80% fat, but you're going to drop your calories down to 1,500 if you're, like, maybe a female might drop down to 1,200. What are you going to have to do? Take 40 grams of protein and have to do resistance training and expect to recover and not how to recover fully and not have a hormones damaged over time, two, three months. Come on. That is not going to be enough protein. So having a set percentage really doesn't work for me in that realm. So something like you might be on a 50%, 60%, 70% fat, it might come down to 40% some days. You know, but other days it might be about 70, 75. If it's, I could ask Joe too, like um, – when you have a, a situation like that, how does it differ when you're like working with uh, like a client that you mentioned earlier who is essentially wrecked their metabolism to the point where they're getting they're getting away with about half of the calories that they would normally be taking in with a healthy, full functioning metabolism? Do you do like a like a reverse dieting type of approach with them to kind of gradually work their calories back up to what would normally be? Um, maintenance versus uh, kind of going right into it, or is it? How do you kind of program that? I I, I like to work calories up pretty quickly, and mm-hmm. I see a big difference in doing it with a carbohydrate diet as doing it with someone who's fat adapted, because they become more efficient at obviously metabolizing fats because they're in a fat-based system. So I like to get them up and cycle calories again. So I bump them up pretty quickly for two to three days, and then let them drop back again. And over time, just keep those the gap between the two numbers diminishing over time because for me Zach there's nothing worse than reverse dieting having 50 calories a week mm-hmm. you know who's going to notice three grams four grams of fat <laughs> a bit? you know I mean it would drive me crazy if I just dieted down for 16 weeks for a bodybuilding competition you're telling me that I've got to spend another 12 14 weeks getting back that's wrong for me mm. the quicker you can get back on an even keel the better and you shouldn't accrue a ton of adipose tissue if you diet down correctly you should just feel pretty good a week after and get very strong again very quick and that's often what what that's what should happen and the training will start to drop off when you're down at five percent body fat you can't do the training volume when you won't be lifting as heavy weight so the quicker that I can get someone back into an environment where the poundages are the poundages are getting back up, and you can increase the training volume, hey, guess what? You need more food to do that, right? Mm-hmm. It's common sense a lot of it, and people just seem to be missing the point. And but again, I understand that people are scared to eat again, you know, because you've dieted down, you spent so long to get scared of food. Sure, and everybody goes through that. But just don't go out and eat everything in sight straight afterwards. Get back to what you would say a healthy maintenance. So let's just say someone, a male, his maintenance calories are 2,500 and he ended his bodybuilding comp- competition or whatever his physique, his photo shoot goals at 1,700. Well, immediately I'd probably try and get him back up to about 22, 2,300 for three or four days and see how his body's looking. Then you might drop down to about... 1800 for two days and then get him back up to 2500 and then keep those numbers going for two to three weeks until he becomes out on an even keel but over that time can start to increase his training volume or just get him lifting heavier and reduce any cardio activity the quicker you can get someone back on an even keel afterwards the better mm-hmm. yeah you know it's interesting because it's a lot of times it's like you said it's a psychological issue as much as anything and that's where it kind of they make it complicated and you get pretty smart people making pretty silly <laughs> decisions and um you, 
You do get a grace period, though, Zach. You, you get a grace period after a bodybuilding show, and you'll get a grace period if you've ever worked with people with almost um, who who crush their metabolism. You'll get a period of, and it'll vary depending on someone's genetics, but you might get seven to ten days where you can increase food, and they won't really gain anything. And then all of a sudden, they'll come to a point where the body's like, okay, I've got enough food, now I can go and store. Mm. So it's really honing in on when those changes are taking place. Because after a bodybuilding show, I mean, you'll get people who eat junk for two or three days, and they're like, wow, I look better, I look harder and fuller. They'll continue to eat junk for another seven days, and they'll, look, <laughs> they'll put another 20, 30 pounds on and get edema. Mm. Like, no, you just got a bit of overzealous and carried away with what you could get away with but if you're smart coming out of that and use like a, a low carb carnivorous style eating out of it with higher protein and fat you can probably ride that out and reset metabolism much quicker than doing it with a carbohydrate diet because with that you get a ton of water weight and inflammation as well which doesn't help anybody yeah, so let me let me just go back to the you know we've got the athlete that we're we're getting leaner and you talked about you know cycling down uh, you know well cycling uh, higher protein days maybe maybe dropping calories a little bit and then and then building in those you know at least to to base a metabolic rate uh, higher fat refeeds is there a prescribe I mean and I, I think I know what your answer is but you, you we can't say every three days have a fat refeed do you or do you say you have to go on some sort of uh, you know, signal, is there some sort of body signal that we can recognize? Because for me, I know, I just feel it. I mean, it, it's kind of weird. It's, yeah. it's not really scientific, but I, I just know I, I need to eat some fat. Is that more preferable to you, or do you like to tell people three days high protein, one day high fat, or how does how do, how would you go about approaching that? Well, if I, if I work with someone, I'll do it visually because I'll have them sending me pictures every day. Um, but if we're prescribing a generic, a generic plan, your feedback loop is going to be how your daily energy is and the biggest feedback is for anyone who's training what the hell's going on with my training are my lifts down am i struggling with my volume and am i getting too tired and i'm not recovering from sessions if it's if your answer is yes to three of those or even two of those and it's like it's a signal okay i'm starting to dig a bit of a hole it's time that i either a refeed or i can maybe dig it i can maybe last for another one to two days but that's it then i need to reset take a rest day and eat some food you know, but, I mean, when it comes to writing, like, um, an automated plan, I've done them before, and it can work. You can do them with a weekly, if you, a weekly refeed or a bi-weekly refeed. The deeper you get into a diet and the lower level of body fat, the more frequent you'll need to refeed, which kind of goes against what most people will think, because you think, okay, I need to get leaner, I need to calorie restrict, calorie restrict, calorie restrict. The deeper you get into a diet, the more often you're going to refeed. So at the start of a diet, you might be able to dig deep for five days and then have one to two days of refeeding. By the time I get someone down four or five percent, it might be two days down, one day up, two days down, one day up, because the metabolism is just that much quicker and there's less accessible fuel. So to maintain a healthy metabolism, you have to feed it more often. Again, most people are scared to do when it goes against common wisdom because what does everybody do? Cut calories, cut calories, cut calories, do more cardio, do more cardio, do more cardio. It's, it's unintuitive to think, okay, maybe a rest day and eating more food is what I need. But when that happens, the body relaxes 
it's not in a stressed state where it's like I've got to hoard everything because I'm stressing out. There's no fuel substrate. There's no energy coming in. It relaxes. Okay, there's energy. There's food coming in. I don't need to hoard anymore. And then when you drop the hammer again, it will release stored body fat. You know, one of the uh, common things I hear, you know, not directly in this field, but I've been around the strength world for my whole life. And so I, I know people that have done this. And a lot of them, you know, particularly physique competitors, whether it's bodybuilding, bikini competitors or whatever, you know, they'll get down to these really very low levels of body fat and, and they find it to be generally a very poor experience. I mean, they, they don't feel very good. Their hormones are shot. Their libido is shot. They just feel very poor but now you're saying that you're you know you're walking around at five to seven percent body fat uh almost year round and i assume you feel pretty good and i think that to me if, if that's possible that that's pretty pretty interesting stuff so can you talk a little bit about that or how you know how you're dealing with staying lean so you know basically continuously without feeling miserable yeah i think that being fat adapted is a plays a key role and without the blood sugar fluctuations you just feel better in general and if you get an adequate sleep which generally I, I don't because I'm traveling I'm probably the worst people person to say that um, but again it's just keeping on top of the nutrition and being consistent I mean you eat the same thing pretty much every day um, I cycle between, I think you see some of my posts, I've been eating a little bit more pork recently, but it's it's mainly beef, pork, and I'll vary the leanness on cuts, and I'll do a lot of salmon as well, because I like higher omega-3s, and it's just keep rotating through them, I will still use some, and this is, I'll get some um, abuse for this, I will still use some egg whites here and there, um, because it's pretty much a no-fat source, if I'm looking just to fill a gap. Um, it's a useful tool to add a little bit, add a little bit of volume and just increase protein, even though you're getting zero micronutrients with it from a macro standpoint. It's useful here and there, especially if it's on a more frequent feeding day. I'm just looking to stimulate mTOR through food and not supplementation. It can be <clears throat> four, four to six egg whites with two to three ounces of meat. It's easy enough done. Um, but again, it comes down to cycling, Sean. It comes down to understanding metabolism, and it comes. I, you can't keep in a deficit and, and stay good for a long time. And once you become accustomed to being lean for a while, the body will adapt. It's like my training sucked. And my energy level sucked for a while. But after three, four months of staying there, things started to improve. It's like anything, the body will adjust. And it will take time. And am I genetically gifted? No. Was I a fat kid? Yes. Did I used to eat a lot of... I used to eat a ton of food growing up. I grew up on a farm, a working farm. I used to eat as much as my father when I was 11. You know, it was high carbohydrates. It was a lot of meat, potatoes and things like that. But, you know, so I've not come from a background where I'm an ectomorph and stay lean naturally. But I keep the energy expenditure up. I always do cardio in the morning. It's not because I have to. For me, it's part of my lifestyle. So I'll get up, I'll have coffee, answer emails, and I'll go and walk or do some medium intensity cardio for 40 minutes and then I'll walk for another 20 minutes but during that time I'll be listening to a podcast I'll have an audio book on and it's my time away from work where I can get some learning some research and some education in so I don't even think about it as training or cardio it's just me being a little bit active because otherwise I'd be sat on my backside all day 
and I grew up on a farm. I'm like, I cannot sit still for that long. So it's making the effort on one one aspect, and you don't have to be doing a ton. For someone, for someone, it might be getting up and walking the dogs. You know, you might get up and walk the dogs for twenty minutes. That will make a big difference. You know, it's it's the little things over time that you do consistently that will make the difference. It's making it a lifestyle, and not. I'm not having the mindset that you're in a diet or you're following something and it sucks. It's like, okay, this is my lifestyle and you're building these habits and then you don't really think about it. The body, you say, adapts over time to the environment you put it into. Joe, what are some of the, you know, you've been around this field for a long time and I know you and I talked and you said you've seen a lot of disasters out there. You know, a lot of people that really wreck their health through whatever nutritional or supplement or even drug errors that they're making in the bodybuilding community. Can you talk about what are the biggest mistakes you're seeing people that are doing out there and, 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 and kind of talk about, you know, why they may be mistakes? Yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pushing food on a nutritional point and obviously assisted people can push food a lot, a lot, a lot more. And that passes on to a lot of, GI issues. You look at stomach distension, and the biggest thing that's becoming more and more prevalent uh, is diabetes. Um, obviously, a carbohydrate-driven diet, high amounts of training volume, high amounts of carbohydrate, compounded year year on year, eating the same foods. So I'm crossing over a couple of things here. So you're eating the same foods, so chicken and rice. Let's say you're eating chicken and rice six times a day. You're doing that in competition prep with high training volume. Then you're off season. You're going to eat. Okay, let's do a cup and a half of rice, two cups of rice. We're going to put. You're eating the same foods and high carbohydrates. And what that's doing is frying the beta cell for one, because it's constantly having to secrete insulin. And over time, we know what that does. You're going to become type two diabetic. And also from a, a gut standpoint, you're giving it the same foods, the same foods, the same foods. Over time, the body rejects the foods. You end up with um, no diversity in gut microbiome, a lot of inflammatory foods, and then you end up with systemic inflammation, C-reactive protein levels go high. And once that, once that occurs, it's a cascade effect throughout the whole physique and the whole body in general. Um other things that we're seeing more becoming more prevalent are things like kidney failure, and that's not down to nutrition. That we're from a a supplement standpoint, uh, specifically in bodybuilding. There's a lot of grey area things, but the sports become pretty unhealthy, and it's people wanting very fast results because we're in the social media era. There's a lot of pressure. It's the Instagram era. People want to post up results quickly. You want to post up selfies, and we've got away from what is very natural. If you go back, and I actually know that you know this, Sean, because so, you spoke of Vince Garonda. If you go back to the 60s and the 70s, they would diet down for a competition. And a lot of the time, it would be on a low-carbohydrate diet, but whether it's low-carbohydrate or it's not, once that competition would over, they'd go back and enjoy the training, but they'd change the food sources. They'd eat a more regular diverse amount of foods and live more of a, a regular life whereas now they don't delete the same foods dieting down delete more of the same foods coming out of a diet and 
it just has so many deleterious health effects and anything that's too restrictive in processed carbohydrates and specifically in grains and sugars over time just causes a ton of metabolic issues. And it's normally after three or four years of this, you'll start to see the physique suffer and then they'll start to get health issues. It needs, we- I keep going back to the point, nutrition needs to be cycled. Training can be cycled with that so you can still develop the physique. So, as I said, lower carbohydrates, lower reps, low glycolytic work will get strong. Then when you're very insulin sensitive again, fine, if you want to reintroduce carbohydrates, introduce carbohydrates will increase training volume, emphasize more sarcoplasmic volume, which is a different form of stimulating hypertrophy. This is, you know. One of the, you know, you because you kind of uh, a couple of times touched around the, the subject of the uh, the healthy gut, and we had a very interesting podcast yesterday where we reviewed. So we, we interviewed a guy, a fellow named Chabot Toth, who is a researcher out of Hungary, and he's been looking pretty intensely at intestinal permeability or the so-called leaky gut syndrome. And he was looking mm-hmm. at some of the big players in that, and the two that he said were the biggest issues were. Uh, some of the vegetable oils, you know, the processed vegetable oils, you know, that we, we that are so ubiquitous in diet, particularly like soybean oil. I, I saw recently that Americans now eat more soybean oil than we eat beef by calorie, which is which is shocking to me. But that's that's just the state of affairs. But soybean oil, and then the next thing he saw with that were, were uh, medications, and sometimes you know vitamins yeah. and things like that. And so there's there's an there's an impact those things have on the gut. And then beyond that, he talked about grains, legumes, you know, sugars, and then dairy uh, being the being the the six most common things he's seeing disturbing the gut. And so I think that's you know the point is if you don't have a healthy gut, it doesn't matter what you're feeding it, you're not going to be able to absorb that correctly. And, and and sometimes you're just going to be causing more damage by some of the foods you're taking in. So I think that's a Again, a, a new area of concentration, but it, it kind of goes back to, to, to ba- the basics of, of getting your nutrition correct. Yeah, I've been touching on that when it comes to, um, I think, the, the dairy protein shakes. I own a supplement company who have never produced a protein. I think that that actually causes a lot of issues over time as well, and I used to drink a ton of them when I was younger. Um, I think that it's a, the protein source is too fast especially when you're looking at an isolate, it's too fast on the gut and it causes a lot of inflammation. If people are pounding three, four, five shakes a day and they're not eating the meals or they're having three a day between meals post-workout, I think over time that has a serious deleterious effect on gut health as well. It's not, the research hasn't come out, it's not been proven, but from personal experience and what I see with athletes as well, it can cause a lot of issues. And it's the same with a lot of these fast-acting protein sources. When I, when I have an athlete who's continuously on egg whites, white fish, and whey protein isolate, I think there's some there's something will come out where it's the speed of digestion of foods that hitting the gut and the frequency is causing damage over time. So I'll be very interested to see how that plays out the next couple of years because I think there's definitely something there. Yeah, I mean, that's again. That's it. Obviously, it's it's uh, it's all speculation, but it's interesting to talk about. And certainly, you you can't sort of completely discount observation. And that's one of the things I've been very, you know, sort of vehemently pointing out that these observations we're seeing matter, and we need to take that seriously. And I think one of the one of the nice things about 
you know, social media has all kinds of problems. There's all kinds of problems that are driven by it. But one of the nice things is we have access to a lot more data and a lot more people's uh, experience. And I think we can kind of utilize it. Let me, uh, um, you know, Joe, let, let's talk, just talk about what you're up to here recently. Let, 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 let us know where, you know, where, where people can find you, what's going on in your world currently. I know you've changed things here in the last few months so kind of let us know what's going on with with joe binley and uh and, and uh you know how to get a hold of you yeah you can uh, follow my instagram which is joe b underscore ad ad is my uh, supplement company which i started nine years ago so on that level we're just getting ready for the mr olympia competition which is four weeks away um we actually should have um a female miss olympia she should win her first one she's the red hot favorite which will be pretty cool for us. On a personal level, I'm actually now for the first time actively looking to add that 15, 20 pounds of muscle back to my frame. So my calories have gone, have increased. I'm practicing just what I've been preaching here. I'm actually doing a lot more powerlifting movements, which is kicking my ass because I haven't trained that way for a good amount of years. And I'm absolutely loving it. I'm enjoying my training the most I have for a long time and a typical day for me again I, I cycle things but it's intuitive I don't really measure or weigh anything and to be honest I, I go crazy I'm like I'm experiencing it I can't get in the scales out and packing Tupperwares and stuff I always have my meal prepped I'm in and out of hotels I'll cook in the hotels um, I've done that by habit for the last 10-12 years because I've lived on the road for the last eight with the company but my day is structured similar to yours, I should expect, when it comes to nutrition on a training day. So typically I'll start with breakfast and it'll be quite calorie dense with higher amounts of fat. And it will normally include a ribeye and a little bit of pork and maybe a little bit of salmon. And I do maybe have like a half ounce of walnuts here and there just for some ALA, uh, smallpox acid. And... I won't eat maybe again until I train five, six hours later. Um, I like my gut pretty empty when I'm training. And what I find with, I was talking about the nutrient timing, the more animal fats, the more dense fats that I consume, the longer that will take to digest. So if I'm eating fattier cuts of pork and beef, that will satiate me for so much longer than eating a leaner cut and augmenting that with an olive oil, a coconut oil, or even a flax oil. There's a massive difference. It's not a macronutrient thing. So if you gave me 50 grams of protein from chicken breast and 35 grams of fat from olive oil or flax oil, that will have a very different transcription on my metabolism to eating 50 grams of protein and 35 grams from ribeye, for example. It also creates a lot more body heat for me. So I'm very sensitive being lean at the moment. I get fluctuations in body heat. Animal fats create a lot more body heat for me. Whether there's a different rate of uncoupling going on or not, again, that's not really being looked at. But I know what I feel and I know what I see with athletes. And I see different hormonal responses when more animal fats are, are involved. So on my training days, I'm higher animal fat, higher red meat. And then on my non-training days, because... You know, personally, I've got a, history, a family history with cancer and I've always been looking towards longevity. On non-training days, I will emphasize 
less inflammatory sources. So I'll have leaner cuts of meat and I'll want to be eating instead of three times a day, I'm trying to eat five times a day. Stimulate mTOR more frequently, but it's again, it's, it's transient. But I'll increase my amount of omega-3 fatty acids on those days. I'll eat more salmon and really try and keep inflammation at bay because the training stimulus is very pro-inflammatory on the joints with a lot of stress. So my rest days are almost active recovery with food. That's the way I look at them. It's how can I control inflammation on those days because certain fats are inflammatory over time, you know. So that's pretty much how I'm structuring what I'm doing. And I actually spoke, I outsourced my training for the first time in 15 years because I always overtrain because it's just work I think it's how I was brought up right so I always bury myself in training and end up crashing so I outsourced my training for the first time to actually a strength coach called Josh Bryan who's worked with a lot of world record holders um, out here and he's a, he was a big bench he was a big bench presser he was the youngest guy to bench press 600 pounds I think yeah, when I was competing in powerlifting, I think he was at a meet I was at years ago. So I, 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 I you know, I remember him from back when he was a young, young guy, still coming up. So interesting. He's a, he's a good guy. He's actually got a book called Keto Bill, and he's a big fan of barbecue, which I'm just discovering out here in Texas. <laughs> so you'll probably see some um, brisket and yeah, brisket. So you got you, you got to get you got to hit up the brisket in Texas. That is outstanding. Yeah, so I've been doing, like, I'm six weeks in with him, and he's actually said um, maybe look at doing a deadlifting competition because maybe if we can get to about 700 pounds by Christmas, it might be worth jumping in one. But I'm a little, I'm a long way away from that, having um, been just five weeks back and not deadlifted for two and a half years, not squatted for two and a half years due to injury. So it's fun. I'm, I'm excited and I'm enjoying it, and we'll be working on probably putting out some literature um, on body composition goals using this kind of dieting style. There's a lot of people who are jumping into jumping on the bandwagon now, and I, I always just sit back and just watch the people who track and trend. And it's like I've been doing this for 15 years with athletes on a good level, and it's funny. A lot of the groups I got kicked out of, and influencers that I argued with in the ketogenic arena, maybe 18 months ago, two years when it started to get popular. I've since inboxed me like, yeah, you were right. <laughs> it's always nice to hear, but it's not when you're the black sheep. But I guess you get that on a daily from the vegan community, right, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, goodness. I, I definitely am, am the black sheep of the vegan community. There's no doubt about it. Well, I mean, Joe, it's it's it's, it's great to see um, you know people like yourself kind of pushing the envelope and experimenting and seeing how this is going to play out and and having success with it. You know, certainly. Uh, I think there's much more we can learn and more that's going to come out of this. And uh, so it's nice to, to be at the forefront of this stuff. And, uh, you know, we'll see how the next next few years shake out. Because I think it's I think we'll, I agree like you. I think this is this, this has a ch- chance to, uh, you know, really change some things. And uh, I, I do, Sean. I think that with seeing a lot of my friends who are professional bodybuilders and a lot of people around me getting very sick. It's gonna it's gonna become more and more prevalent, and it become more people will become aware of it. And I do not believe that having a good physique and having stellar health markers are mutually exclusive. There's a way to achieve both, and I think we're on the uh, the cusp of really sharing that and 
teaching people a lot of new things and how they can achieve that, have a lifestyle, have a great physique, and have a long, healthy life. That's kind of what my uh, goal and end piece is over the next three to four years to really share that message and help educate on that front. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's I think, that's what all of our goal is here, I think, with what we're doing. This is, you know, we have all these different components going on. We just we just talked with one of the folks from the uh, National Cattlemen's uh, Associate, National Beef Producers, over Dr. Place, talking about from the environmental impact. So it's good to get all these different, mm-hmm. all these different areas and bring it together and try to educate people. And that's what we're trying to do with this particular podcast. Well, I grew up on a beef farm, Sean. So yeah, <laughs> good for you. I, I wish I had one, man. I'd be a happy man. But uh, maybe one day. Hey, uh, thanks, Joe, for coming on. We really appreciate it. We'll get this thing out. Uh, uh, you know, Zach will get it up on Patreon within a day or two, and then probably about two weeks it'll come out for general release. And so. We'll let you know when that happens. But uh, Zach, anything else? Yeah, no, that's uh, that was great info, Joe. Thank you for coming on. Um, like Sean said, we'll uh, we'll get it out to our listeners, and uh, you know, I'm sure they'll love all the stuff that you had there uh, for their for their educational purposes. But um, yeah, if you uh, if you have anything else you want to share, please definitely do it. Otherwise, I can put stuff in the show notes too. Yeah, no problem. As I said, we didn't really touch on the. Um the supplement side and the um, that side of things and augmenting things, but well, that might be something for um, maybe later down the road when we look at bringing something out to hacking the body composition using this eating style and bolting mm-hmm. on something. You know, yeah, yeah, that might be good. That that might be good for another follow-on. I think we were yeah. we're starting to get enough shows in there where we're you know eventually we're going to start you know bringing some guests on for some follow-ups and i think i think i think there's gonna be a lot of people that are interested in this joe based on what i see the feedback i get and you know the questions yeah. i get almost every day uh you know I, I get a lot of questions about health but i equally get a lot of questions about you know body composition and stuff and so this is going to be very helpful and, I, and in fact i've told people wait i got an interview coming up you listen to the podcast <laughs> and learn something so yeah it, it saves me from having to type a lot i'd say just go listen to the damn podcast yeah <laughs> well we 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 answer a lot of questions i think but we we also generate a few more afterwards so i think at some point there'll be a lot of repeat guests coming back in and following yeah. up on a lot of stuff so um cool yeah thanks again no worries thanks for having me guys all right guys cool Hey everyone, Sean and I are excited to announce that Human Performance Outliers Podcast has partnered with Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery store that focuses on making high quality grocery shopping easy. By going to thrivemarket.com backslash HPO and shopping, you not only support the HPO podcast, but will also receive 25 to 50% off traditional retail prices. On top of that, with every annual membership, Thrive will donate a free annual membership to low income family, teacher, or veteran. If you don't make up your membership fee and savings, Thrive will refund your membership fee. The link can be found in the show notes. Thanks for your support. Hey folks, thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me, at ZBitter, that's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R, and you can find Sean, at SBakerMD, that's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, 
where you can find me at Zach Bitter. That's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.